This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tremendous Trifles by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 3 The Secret of a Train. All this talk of a railway mystery has sent my mind back to a loose memory. I will not merely say that this story is true, because, as you will soon see, it is all truth and no story. It has no explanation and no conclusion. It is, like most of the other things we encounter in life, a fragment of something else, which would be intensely exciting if it were not too large to be seen. For the perplexity of life arises from there being too many interesting things in it for us to be interested properly in any of them. What we call as triviality is really the tag-ends of numberless tales. Ordinary and unmeaning existence is like ten thousand thrilling detective stories mixed up with a spoon. My experience was a fragment of this nature, and it is, at any rate, not fictitious. Not only am I not making up the incidents, what there were of them, but I am not making up the atmosphere of the landscape, which were the whole horror of the thing. I remember them vividly, and they were as I shall now describe. About noon of an ashen autumn day some years ago, I was standing outside the station at Oxford, intending to take the train to London. And for some reason, out of idleness, or the emptiness of my mind, or the emptiness of the pale grey sky, or the cold, a kind of caprice fell upon me that I would not go by that train at all, but would step out on the road and walk at least some part of the way to London. I do not know if other people are made like me in this matter, but to me it is always dreary weather, what may be called useless weather, that slings into life a sense of action and romance. On bright blue days I do not want anything to happen. The world is complete and beautiful, a thing for contemplation. I no more ask for adventures under that turquoise dome than I ask for adventures in church. But when the background of man's life is a grey background, then in the name of man's sacred supremacy I desire to paint on it in fire and a gore. When the heavens fail, man refuses to fail. When the sky seems to have written on it, in letters of lead and pale silver, the decree that nothing shall happen, then the immortal soul, the prince of the creatures, rises up and decrees that something shall happen, if it be only the slaughter of a policeman. But this is a digressive way of stating what I have said already that the bleak sky awoke in me a hunger for some change of plans, that the monotonous weather seemed to render unbearable the use of the monotonous train, and that I set out into the country lanes out of the town of Oxford. It was perhaps at that moment that a strange curse came upon me out of the city and the sky, whereby it was decreed that years afterward I should, in an article in the Daily News, talk about Sir George Trevelyan in connection with Oxford, when I knew perfectly well that he went to Cambridge. As I crossed the country, everything was ghostly and colorless. The fields that should have been green were as gray as the skies. The treetops that should have been green were as gray as the clouds and as cloudy. 
and when I had walked for some hours the evening was closing in. A sickly sunset clung weakly to the horizon, as if pale with reluctance to leave the world in the dark. And as it faded more and more, the skies seemed to come closer and to threaten. The clouds, which had been merely sullen, became swollen, and then they loosened, and let down the dark curtains of the rain. The rain was blinding, and seemed to beat like blows from an enemy at close quarters. The skies seemed bending over and bawling in my ears. I walked on many more miles before I met a man, and in that distance my mind had been made up, and when I met him I asked him if anywhere in the neighborhood I could pick up the train for Paddington. He directed me to a small, silent station, I cannot even remember the name of it, which stood well away from the road and looked as lonely as a hut on the Andes. I do not think I have ever seen such a type of time and sadness and skepticism, and everything devilish, as that station was. It looked as if it had always been raining there, ever since the creation of the world. The water streamed from the soaking wood of it, as if it were not water at all, but some loathsome liquid corruption of the wood itself, as if the solid station were eternally falling to pieces and pouring away in filth. It took me nearly ten minutes to find a man in the station. When I did, he was a dull one, and when I asked him if there was a train to Paddington, his answer was sleepy and vague. As far as I understood him, he said there would be a train in half an hour. I sat down and lit a cigar and waited, watching the last tale of the tattered sunset and listening to the everlasting rain. It may have been in a half an hour or less, but a train came rather slowly into the station. It was an unnaturally dark train. I could not see a light anywhere in the long black body of it, and I could not see any guard running beside it. I was reduced to walking up to the engine and calling out to the stoker to ask if the train was going to London. Well, yes, sir, he said with an unaccountable kind of reluctance. It is going to London, but... It was just starting, and I jumped into the first carriage. It was pitch dark. I sat there smoking and wondering, as we streamed through the continually darkening landscape, lined with desolate poplars, until we slowed down and stopped irrationally in the middle of a field. I heard a heavy noise, as of someone clambering off the train, and a dark, ragged head suddenly put itself into my window. "'Excuse me, sir,' said the stoker, "'but I think, perhaps, well, perhaps you ought to know, there's a dead man in this train.' Had I been a true artist, a person of exquisite susceptibilities and nothing else, I should have been bound, no doubt, to be finally overwhelmed with this sensational touch, and to have insisted on getting out and walking. As it was, I regret to say, I expressed myself politely but firmly to the effect that I didn't care particularly if the train took me to Paddington. But when the train had started with its unknown burden, I did do one thing, and do it quite instinctively, without stopping to think, or to think more than a flash. I threw away my cigar. Something that is as old as man, and has to do with all mourning and ceremonial, told me to do it. There was something unnecessarily horrible, it seemed to me, in the idea of there being only two men in that train, and one of them dead, and the other smoking a cigar. And as the red and gold of the butt-end of it faded like a funeral torch, trampled out at some symbolic moment of a procession, 
I realized how immortal ritual is. I realized what is the origin and essence of all ritual, that in the presence of those sacred riddles about which we can say nothing, it is more decent merely to do something. And I realized that ritual will always mean throwing away something, destroying our corn or wine upon the altar of our gods. When the train panted at last into Paddington Station, I sprang out of it with a sudden released curiosity. There was a barrier and officials guarding the rear part of the train. No one was allowed to press towards it. They were guarding and hiding something, perhaps death in some too shocking form, perhaps something like the Merstham matter, so mixed up with human misery and wickedness that the land has to give it a sort of sanctity perhaps something worse than either. I went out, gladly enough, into the streets, and saw the lamps shining on the laughing faces. Nor have I ever known from that day to this into what strange story I wandered, or what frightful thing was my companion in the dark. End of chapter 3